I don't want a pickle, just want to ride on my motorcycle. Okay, NoCo Moto, episode two. I am your host, Moto G. Pete. With me here is Swiggy. Hey. And we've got our very first guest, Mr. Mike Action, in studio with us. How's it going? All right. So, just like last time, let's roll straight right into our first topic here best worst bike in the world this week and you've got worst bike in the world this week i do all right let's wait okay reveal it the worst bike in the world this week is the 2003 honda deville what the i've never even heard of this thing so this ran from 98 to 2013 this is based on the NT650 and 700 platform. Okay. It is an adventure tourer. <laughs> so this is this is pre long way around. This is uh no uh well I it, it came out before the the first episode of Long Way Around, but it kind of refined into something that was somewhat usable. But this bike in particular, now I I do want to mention this bike is also a strong contender for best bike in the world. <laughs> and it's so weird, and for some reason it just upsets me. It's technically a touring bike. Uh-huh. 650cc uh, V-twin. V-twin. It's making 56 horsepower. It has uh, 40 foot-pounds of torque. Now, here's where it gets weird. You've got 56 horsepower. Uh-huh. The dry weight of this bike is 490 pounds. Okay. And in reality, you're not going to get that full 56 horsepower because it's shaft drive as well. Oh, that's one of the reasons it's so dang heavy. So 56 at 500 pounds. This thing's a little sluggish. So it's not just... Well, 490 pounds is the dry weight. It comes with the panniers as standard. Uh-huh. And it normally gets a... Uh, that Most people put... A top box on it as well. Okay. Now, it also has a 5.1 gallon tank. So, just with the fuel and no other fluids, you're already up to 540 pounds. Yeah, this thing's a bit of a fucking porker, isn't it? It is. So, this was somewhat of a budget touring bike. It's, you know, it's no BMW 1200 GS. It's not even a 650GS. No. But it also had lots of interesting aftermarket features. My favorite in particular is you can get a tape deck slash CD player. You get a tape deck? Yes. Which, I don't know if that's cool or just ridiculous. Now you said aftermarket feature. Is that made by a third party or Honda made? Or not, not, sorry, not aftermarket, um, uh, options. Okay, so Honda made a factory option for a tape deck on this. Yes. That's so bizarre. <laughs> so, the name, DeVille... So, wait, so, does it have speakers in it that came as part of the system then? Uh, not standard, but you, I believe you could get them. It came with the, the, the tape deck. Okay. Now, the name DeVille... This is really the most damning thing about this bike. Okay. It's a sport tourer, and it's named after 
the seaside resort of Deville, France. Uh huh. Which you know would be okay for a fifty cc scooter, right? But this is supposed <laughs> to be an adventure tour. Yeah, when I'm thinking adventure bikes, the south of France isn't really what springs to mind. Especially, no. you know, not, not the seaside. You're thinking about, you know, going through the jungles. You're thinking about, you know, the Alps. You're thinking about, you know, even areas out here in Colorado, you know, up off off the highway, you know, mm-hmm. getting into the shiggy. Yeah, look at all the rugged off-road trucks, right? Exactly. The, yeah. The Durango. <laughs> the Yukon. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you'll there'll never be a, a rugged truck called the Deville. <laughs> so here's the thing. This bike has a very small but very fanatical following. And people at people who have just ridden these bikes like twenty eight hundred miles across Europe and back. What the big selling point of this bike uh-huh. is that it just keeps going. Nothing goes wrong with it. It's just absolute it is probably the most bulletproof Honda of its time. So, you know, in theory it's sort of like a a much uglier, less sporty, way slower um interceptor. It's like a VFR, but it's a twin, not a four. And it's slow, and it's ugly. (laughs) So, think about this. The W650 has 50 horsepower, but its wet weight is 440 pounds. Uh And you generally just have the one person on it. This is designed to be comfortable going two up with a bunch of luggage to go touring. So, if you had two people together... Plus a bunch of gear and clothing and everything you're traveling with. Then you add on the gas and all the fluids. You're probably looking at close to maybe 800 pounds with 50 horsepower. Yeah, that's not ideal. Not at all. I, I don't know how... I think it might be somewhat serviceable on fairly level terrain... Going very long distances. But I almost feel like it would be squirrely just trying to get up to uh, uh, Estes Park. Those long winding roads. Um, It's got very soft suspension with fairly short travel. It's shaft drive. It's heavy as hell. Oh, it's terrible. I want to talk about how it looks. It looks not unlike a Katana. Like an early Katana. So... Actually, Except that someone lost the lower half of the fairings, and they're like, "Yeah, I don't care." It is a it is a lot like uh, an SV six fifty S quarter fairing or like semi fairing, right? But and here's then, the thing. But then it's got these this 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 silly um, this silly like gas tank, and then it has really high handlebars coming up inside the fairing, which really betray the whole sport look it's supposed to be going for. Well, here's the thing. It's it's trying to go for this sport look. And the face of it's very 90s ninja as It well. is. But it kind of all goes together, and it is... A lot of it is functional, to be fair. It kind of all goes together. Yeah, it kind of all goes together badly. 
Well, yes, but it's somewhat functional at least. But this whole sporty look, it's it's trying to pull off on the front end. This bike is living a lie. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the, the so I mean the luggage is uh, is that is that incorporated into the rear fairing there, Jonathan? Uh, no, they are detachable, and but um, in fact there is an there is a uh, an accessor a dealer accessory to get larger panniers to go on it. So you can carry even more weight that this bike can't pull. Right. Now, I do get the feeling that if I got a hold of one, I would probably just find out that I absolutely loved it. <laughs> and I'm afraid to find out. But When going downhill. Right. Right. Look, I love weird bikes, and I love bikes that other people hate, but I really don't think I could ever bring myself to be seen in public on one of these things. <laughs> Look, that we spent we spent 40 minutes of the last podcast talking about my love affair with the Suzuki Bergman 650 Maxi scooter. I could not get on this. I'm sorry. I'd rather walk. I, I'd <laughs> also like to point out that the Suzuki Ber- Bergman executive has more horsepower than this touring bike has. Yeah, and it and it weighs slightly less too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because the Bergman said it was five twenty five, and so we figured this is probably make is probably somewhere around five forty after a tank of gas. Tank of gas, um, bunch of oil as well. I believe it has a fairly large oil reserve. I think it would probably be five fifty, five sixty, curb weight. Jeez. And what's the what's the wheelbase on this? The wheelbase is let's see. So could you say that this bike takes sport touring and just removes the sport part of it? I'm so not even sure that this bike tours. <laughs> I mean, what at, at that weight with that little power, what can you even take with you? What you can do is you can just keep going and never stop. That's really what it does. Well, yeah, it doesn't get you, you there. Make it to your fucking hotel because you're not going to hold the tent on this thing. Well, right. So you're going to you're going to have make it pretty if if you drive economically on it, you're going to have probably close to a 300 mile range. And you know you may struggle doing anything too aggressive or too steep of an incline, <laughs> but but. It's just going to be rock solid, and the weight is actually going to help with the handling quite a bit, just in terms of being easy to ride and ride a long way. You're defending this a lot. I know, I don't know. Being the one that suggested it for worst bike in the world, I'm really carrying that torch here. I hate the look of this thing. I hate the performance on this thing. I, I don't think it's practical for what it's designed to do. Yes, Jonathan's defending it. To I'm not. A, I'm not to a point. But... I'm not defending it. I'm just explaining mm-hmm. what <laughs> the vision is. Would anyone who listens to a MotoGP podcast support any of the things you just said about this bike? The problem with this bike, and the problem that I'm seeing, and the problem with, is that this bike was made with a vision, like you said, but it's failing that purpose and what you said it's got a very small but fanatical following i bet they're extremely apologetic about the machine because this bike is failing them it's failing what it's supposed to do so here's here's my here's my biggest problem with it because you know a bike can have fairly horrible specs Uh 
but as long as it fits into a role and can fit into somebody's life in some way, you know, like the KLR 650, Mm -hmm. it's a big, heavy dirt bike. Right. It doesn't have good power to weight ratio. It doesn't handle that well. It's got a lot of things on it that really aren't very good for off-roading. But it's super cheap. It's really easy to fly to another country, buy one in cash, go on a on a thousand mile adventure and sell it off at the end. Right. And it you know, it fits into somebody's life. It serves a purpose and people use them for a very good reason, which is they're cheap and they allow you to do these things that you really wouldn't be able to do with a lot of other bikes because it would just be too expensive. I don't know how this bike fits into somebody's life. I don't know how this could be your only bike. I don't know what it would do that warrants it being a second bike. I I don't understand where this would fit as somebody's only bike or in their fleet of bikes. I I don't I don't know where where it goes. Yeah, if anyone listening has one that they want to bring by, not so I can ride it, just so I can make fun of you in person for having it. Please get a hold of us. This is a disaster. Like, what? Um, can you find any marketing on this? Any ads for it from the time? Uh, let's see. Because it's basically like a boardroom decision. I mean, this is this is compromised. This motorcycle. Everything about this bike is compromised. Well, it's got to have luggage. Well, that's going to put weight on. Well. Oh, let's bump it up from a 500 to a 650. Well, you know, the styling's got to be... Like I said, the front of it's so 90s ninja. And the side, from the sides of the fairing, it's so katana. This, You're right. This was... This was I don't know. What the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the motorcycle from RoboCop. <laughs> it could be. Uh, no, I can't find any... Very quick, off the top of my okay. All right, so I mean, you know, very very soon here, I'm going to talk about how much I love um, '90s styling in sport bikes and just '90s styling in just motorcycles in general. It's my favorite era for the aesthetics of bikes, which a lot of people might disagree with. This bike is so '90s and so horrible at the same time there's nothing good about what i like about 90 styling going on with this machine and you know now people are buying a lot of adventure bikes and these sport tours and stuff largely as a fashion statement because they like the way the bike looks they like what the bike says this is a sport tourer that doesn't even make you look cool this is an adventure bike that doesn't even make you look cool Wow. Wow, that's useless. Okay, should we we move on to best bike in the world? Yep, let's do it. Okay, so the best bike in the world this week. Should we get another drum roll? (coughs) Um, It is the Honda CBR650F. I I thought I was going to leave this one to talk about till later, but I, I can't. I'm so excited about this bike. I love this. So... A lot of people dislike the 650 class of bikes because they generally are a little bit gutless. They generally are a little bit slow and they don't really live up to what a regular 600 slower than a normal 600 Supersport. Yes, 
but not very much. Rather than cut off a huge amount of power, this just slices a little bit off the top, the power that you wouldn't notice is missing. And it adds in mid-range power, and it adds in torque. So this is actually faster on the streets. This is faster in the real world. This gets up and goes and has that grunt and that roll on power in traffic that your R6 isn't going to have. Now it's still super cool. I think it looks fantastic. You know, it's aggressive, but it doesn't have that insane insect look that a lot of the bikes are getting now. Mm -hmm. Um, It's got clip on handlebars, but they rise up just a tiny bit above the forks So the ergonomics are really good. You could ride and ride this thing forever. Um, You know, a whole lot of the things that you would expect on a 600 or 650 sport bike. You've got six-speed transmission, your 525 chain, you know, all that sort of stuff. It has a four and a half gallon fuel tank, though, which distinguishes it from your regular 600 class of bikes where you'd be looking more about three to three and a half gallons. So this is going to go a lot further. So this is much more practical to ride around. You're fueling up less often. You're still going flying like a bat out of hell because it's fast. But, you know, it's detuned a little bit. So it's down at 11.4 to 1 compression versus like the 12 and a half, 13, 14 uh, to 1 compression you'll have. So this engine's going to last longer than your average 600 Super Sports. It's still um, a really short stroke motor, so you do get to rev it up high to squeeze some of that power out of it, but you still get a little bit more in the mid-range. You don't have to absolutely ring it out every time you want power like you have to do on a 600. This is absolutely wonderful for me because so many 650 bikes are just blah. I mean, a Ninja 650, I, I couldn't do it. That's just a standard bike with low power, disguised as a sport bike right do it the 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 gs650 or gsx650 is just the same what i do love about this bike what it's really doing is it's demonstrating all the things you can do once you break free of the 600 cc race spec Mm -hmm. you've just bumped up 50 cc's you're out of the race So now you can say, okay, let's add a little bit more torque. Let's drop the horsepower and the top speed. We can go for an underslung exhaust because we don't need all these aftermarket exhausts to ring out a few more horsepower and make it obnoxiously loud. We get to have the mid-range pegs. We get to have the larger fuel tank. We get a whole bunch of nice accessories. It's just kind of... Now that it's broken free of that restriction, it's still sporty, but it has all of these real-world advantages. Yeah, the only people that are going to dislike it are guys that own 600 and 1-liter sport bikes. And the 1-liter guys won't even care, because anyone who's not on a 1-liter bike is just inferior to them in general anyway. (coughs) And your 600 guys... Yeah, they might be like, well, it's not as fast as my R6. Well, how fast do you have to be going? You know, I'm really tired of these guys that complain about anything that's not the absolute fastest bike in whatever category or just the absolute fastest bike all out. You know, this idea that if you're on a 600 or a 650, you're going to get left behind by the leader bikes. If that's true, you're riding with assholes. 
They're not your friends. Stop riding with them. They're complete dickhead, elitist, basic bros that really just need to stop and get out of the community, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah. The um, Now, the price on this thing is really attractive, too. I think these are $8,500. Uh, I believe it's 8800 for ABS. Right. So under nine grand with ABS, that's a fantastic deal for something that's going to be realistically just as fast on the street as the, uh, you know, eleven and a half thousand dollars six hundred um, super sport equivalent. You know, you're saving a couple thousand dollars, and you're getting a lot more real world practicality and rideability out of this thing. It's a no brainer for me. Um, I think 600 super sports are largely dying out, which is a little bit sad because I love how bonkers that they are, but I think they're going to be replaced with bikes like this. I think we're going to see something like this come from Kawasaki and Suzuki and Yamaha pretty soon. It's also very interesting because Honda has discontinued the hurricane. Yeah, the so CBR six hundred RR. So now Honda does not have a production six hundred CC Supersport. So it's interesting now because within those class ranges, you've now got the CBR three hundred RR, the CBR five hundred RR, and the CBR six fifty RR. And now they've just kind of abandoned that class. I'm wondering what their overall plan is, is that coming back, or is this the new normal for Honda? I hope it's the new normal. You know, I'd even love it if they took it to a 750, uh, dropped the compression just a little bit more, maybe gave it a little bit more horsepower, so it got up to like 100 horsepower, and beefed up a little bit more torque, and then it would be really, really absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. I, Yeah. And there we go. I I don't think there's any more argument that needs to be made for it. If you're not riding one of these, you're just not on the best bike in the world. And that's that's that simple. That's it. Mr. Mike, let's talk about some of the bikes that you've had. What what are you riding right now? So I have, I own two bikes. uh, And one I've owned for the past um, 11 years. And but it's been in parts, and the one I'm riding now is a uh, is a Buell XB9R Firebolt 2003. Okay, first let's talk about the uh, the first one, the Kawasaki, right? Yeah, so that was my that was my starter bike. Uh, It's a 1980 Kawasaki KZ550, and I bought it in 2006. And how much would you pay for it? $790. Excellent. Mm. And um, we went and picked it up in Danville, didn't we? That's right. Yeah, we, we drove from Columbus, Indiana to Danville, Illinois. And, and it was December. This is the second time we've mentioned Danville, Illinois in two episodes. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, we drove it up there. And I remember when we got there, they didn't even have like a dealer plate for it, did they? Mm-hmm. I just had to ride it back. Well, you, because we both went up in the Mustang. Is That's that right. right? Yeah. yeah. We both went up in my Mustang 
And then I had to ride the thing back because you, you'd never even ridden a motorcycle at the time, had you? <laughs> no, my, my first experience. I had gone around a parking lot on, uh, on, on the motorcycle you were riding at the time. Oh, the Nighthawk. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, I rode it back. And wasn't it like 20 degrees that day or something yeah. horrible? <laughs> and it was like right before Christmas. I don't know what made us think this is a good idea. And I, at a certain point, we had to stop. And there was like a Carhartt store, mm-hmm. and I couldn't even afford like any of the gloves or anything that were in the stuff in the place. <laughs> and then we stopped at a gas station. I just found like little random things to try to insulate myself and my clothing while I rode this motorcycle 200 miles from Danville to Columbus with no insurance, no license, no license plate, no registration, no nothing. And Mike was just right up on my ass in the Mustang the entire time. <laughs> and you know what? I, I, I got pulled over yep, yep. when we were about, what, like, uh, less than a quarter mile from our destination. We were down the street from the barn that we were going to park it in. It was the, it was a shed behind our friend's house. Yeah. And, and I could see the shed off off ahead of us well and i was wearing that um ridiculous um old bell helmet and i had those um those leather like aviator goggles and they were mirrored but it took so long to ride back and i had to stop because it was so cold so many times that it was dark by the time we got back and i just couldn't even see shit with these like hard like uh reflective leather goggles that i was wearing and i had this ridiculous white scarf at the time as well i was going for a real strange look um yeah so the cop pulled us over and i don't know why he even let me go I was, it, it was because i was following you with all the paperwork i guess because so. i like waved it out the well he like went for his gun because he pulled me over and then Mike just gets out of the Mustang and comes like running over the cop, like, "Oh, I've got all the paperwork over here." He's like, "Oh, whoa, whoa, what's going on?" Yeah. <laughs> okay, so then you took that thing to Pittsburgh, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I took it with me to Pittsburgh. And how long did it run without any problems? Um, well, it never had problems um, until I started messing with it. Right. Um, but I had just not really main- maintenanced it well. It had sat. I kind of had, uh, I ran it kind of every other year. Uh, the, mo- the most heavy riding I ever did on it was the first couple of years when I was commuting into another town. Uh, and, I, and I would actually use it for work. Um, there you go. But then when I took it to Pennsylvania, then it sat for a season. And then I rode it just casually. Uh, didn't I, I worked across the street from where I was living, so I didn't really need to commute anywhere. Uh, so then it sat. I actually wheeled it into my apartment <laughs> and p- parked it in my spare bedroom uh, for two years. And uh, and in Pittsburgh, uh, it got it got a good bit of use. I'd already owned it for four or five years before I really got out on it in Pittsburgh. And it it is a it's a great bike because the five fifties are pretty lightweight and you can really kind of toss them around and they're really nice for for managing those those curvy mountain roads. So very different from, you know, of heavy American choppers that are that are that are, you know, a thousand plus CCs and are just designed to go fairly comfortably down these straight U.S. county roads uh, in the Appalachians. You get uh, it's a completely different animal, and, and that was a good bike to, to have there. Yeah, that bike's interesting because it was sort of like, you know, the KZs, 
were sort of UJM bikes, but by the time you get to 1980, they're starting to morph into this sort of Harley Cruiser almost wannabe kind of style, but definitely not. Still very Japanese. Well, even the late um, the late seventies, like KZ nine hundred, was a common police motorcycle. Yeah. No, it was a KZ KZ one thousand was a police. That's what they rode in chips. Everyone thinks it's like an electric glide or something. It's well, there KZ is the KZ nine hundred and the KZ one thousand, and both. Yeah, and nine hundred was more sport oriented. Mm-hmm. I, th- I believe. Well, yeah, because they just like basically put it out again as the Z nine hundred now. Which right. everyone's causing it's causing a big stir with everyone. Everyone loves the look of that bike. And I have to say it does look pretty good. I do. I do sort of admire it a little bit. Although I'm kinda over the whole retro bike thing a little bit. You know? Eh. I mean at least at least these guys are buying like new bikes that are retro styled rather than going down this horrible, painful road of buying these old bikes, getting in over their heads. You know, but Mike, you're a Which, rare example of getting yourself into an old bike and actually being able to live with it. Like, how many miles do you think you've put on this thing? I've probably put about six, seven thousand miles on it. Um, not because it's been apart for for years at a time. Like, I've taken a few long trips on it, um, but I've only gotten probably in the, so in the eleven years I've owned it, I've probably only gotten five good seasons out of it uh so i started to maintenance it because it had been mostly sitting and i hadn't done a lot of basic stuff to it mm-hmm. so i op- i opened up the engine for the first time which i'm i'm a i'm a novice to engines so i really right. did, not, did not know what i was doing had to start from scratch and read about this i opened up the uh, the valve cover just to see what my valve specs were uh, because I, I didn't know if the car, I, I knew that the carburetor was perfectly cleaned out uh, because I just replaced the carbs, uh, mm-hmm. but I didn't know. But that I saw I, there were some basic smaller performance issues, nothing that was keeping me off the road. But I just wanted to know that that motorcycle was running perfectly. So I opened it up, and, it, and all the valves were in spec, and I put it back together, and then I got this stupid idea to put these MGO cone filters <laughs> Oh, the MGOs are mm-hmm. so bad, and and that was my downfall. Wait, if you're you have... talking about pod filters, yes, yes. yes. Oh. And, oh, and these are the worst ones too. Mike. The MGOs, yeah. So the the worst thing about MGOs or or pod filters in general, but especially the MGOs, if you have a carburetor any more complicated than what's on your lawnmower, these are a bad idea. There's all sorts of other little air passages and jets and things that. Quite often, these will even just cover up on the end of your carb. If you take a good look at the at the uh, the intake on your carburetor, there's little airways and passages, not just the great big hole, but around that. And putting these pod filters on will fuck with that to no end. Was it Phil from Cleveland Moto said? You know, you can't guarantee it'll run right, but we can guarantee that your bike will run different. <laughs> and and it wasn't a good experience for se- for several reasons. One, I mean, I was just I was going more for an aesthetic. I did not understand uh, the the subtleties of air intake well. Uh, you right. really can't improve on uh, on a Japanese bike. You can't improve on the 
air intake system that they designed for it. You know, right. that, that, there's something to be said for laminar flow and the way that it comes in to the bike. And I just thought that these four cones would look cooler than the box. So I put it all back together. And this project, I mean, I was doing other things. I, I had a very intense job at the time. And so we're talking over the course of about six months. I got it taken apart just to measure this one thing and put it back. It was something you could do in an afternoon, but it took me six months because I was, I was taking my time. And that's kind of the theme of this bike. I'm taking my time with it. Um, but these filters, um, basically right when I fired it up, I mean, it's basically the, I think it's the filter equivalent of having no filter at all. Yeah. And, You'd be yeah. better off just like getting some scotch bright pads with rubber bands around them and sticking them over <laughs> the end. <laughs> and, and this bike, I mean, it had no bottom end. Uh, I, I, I didn't get a lot of riding out of it because of what's about to happen. But mm -hmm. I, I remember having it in my driveway and just revving it up. And I, I could not control it unless it was flat out. And that's what those filters are supposed to be for, is for drag racing. Is just, to, like, you're supposed to be able to get maximal air intake just to lay flat out. Go as fit. Yeah, when I put them on my CB350, I did discover that I had some more power at the top end. But I had no power in the lower mid-range, which is where you really want your power. There was no range. The bike, I, I was killing the bike, just trying to... Uh, killing the engine, just trying to... Keep Keep it at any range right and, and so i put it in gear and i take it up the hill and i'm i'm going probably 25 miles an hour and i kind of lay it out to go up the hill and it, i hear this clang clatter you know and, and i'm like oh god and i cut the engine right away mm -hmm. and i roll so i'm going up the hill so i just roll back down right into my driveway and that was the end of that <laughs> And it turned out that uh, on, so on these on, on these Kawasaki uh, carbs, there's a choke valve, and there's a, a part on it um, that it, it's the shape of a thumbnail. And there's an equivalent to this on all carburetors that basically holds your valve slightly open. Yes. Um, so that there's so even if your choke is completely closed, there's a small amount of airflow. And there, so there's four of these, and in my case, in, on my bike, they were spring-loaded, which I haven't seen on any other motorcycles. Yeah, I haven't seen it's, it either. It was kind of an odd design. They're usually these windows that, that, that open sideways, uh, but these are four spring-loaded clips. And it turns out that all four of the clips were cracked, and I didn't know this. So when I, when I use those cones mm -hmm. to draw so much power through those carbs two of the four cracked off and went into my cylinders and into and the pistons chewed up one of them so my number one cylinder is the one that got chewed up number three i'm assuming it just passed through went into my exhaust is never to be seen again but <laughs> but i got i got back to my driveway and figured out right away i popped those cones off and two of those four were just gone. That's so wild. And, and then that started the process of me taking the engine apart and getting down to the piston and finding that part and seeing how much damage, which it turns out not all that much. There's some chatter in the valves, uh, but finding out how much damage it did to my motorcycle is my motorcycle even serviceable. It must have been such a gut-like sinking feeling. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, first when it happened and then riding it back to your garage and seeing it. Oh, it's such a terrible moment. 
So, okay. So right now the whole thing's taken apart. Right? Yeah. So, so finally, so, so I moved from Pennsylvania to the Denver area, uh, and another year passed. And then finally I had the time to take the engine apart and get down to the, the piston to find it. And mm-hmm. sure enough, I found it. I've got a picture of it. Um, little chewed up piece of metal sitting right there with all the chatter on the piston head and all the chatter around the valve, but all the, all the really integral components. I mean, yes, I could, I could do some lapping to make it better, but all the integral edges of the valve, uh, piston wall, cylinder wall, Mm -hmm. everything's intact and, and no, no major gouging. So it can just go back together. Right on. Mm -hmm. Okay. So while this thing's been apart, you also got a wild hair, and you bought something else recently. Yeah, I needed something to ride now that I'm now that I'm uh, settled into a new city. I needed something to ride while I was putting this other one together. So, All right. So what did you buy? So I bought an O3 Buell XB9R. I'm in love with this bike. This is the most fucking bananas machine ever. It's uh, was it how many? How, what's the displacement on it? It's like it's almost it's one a, liter, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's nine nine eight, I believe. In fact, so it's a liter that. bike. Yeah, but right, as opposed to Japanese fashion, they have heavily rounded down. Yeah, because Eric Buell is just that fucking confident. I love it, and it's and it's making like eighty five or a hundred horsepower somewhere in that range. Um. A little bit less horsepower than you'd expect for that displacement, but it's like huge torque, like 60 foot pound torque. Um, and the thing's pretty quick and it just kicks you in the ass when you pull the throttle on it. But so, so it is a racing bike, yeah. Um, but it's also an extremely unique bike, so right. so maybe, uh, here, Peter, why don't you tell us a little bit about the kind of the intro to. To Buell's here, why? Why Eric Buell is such a mad? Well, just just to in break here. in real quick, quick specs: ninety-two horsepower, which is not a lot for a leader bike, uh, but sixty-eight foot-pounds of torque. There you go. And the the power-to-weight ratio is just over, is about two horsepower per kilo. So, or. Sorry, half a horsepower per kilo. So the bike is coming up on around 400 pounds. There you go. So it's nice and lightweight. It's easily flickable. And there's all sorts of bizarre things about Buells that I I don't even know if we have time <laughs> to go into. All the weird things that make Buell Buell with the... Uh, with the dry sumps, all the oils in the swing yeah. arm, the, and this this is this is one that still has the Harley motor in it. Right, that's before right. they went yeah, to it's the a, Rotex. It's a Harley Sportster engine, heavily modified. So the so the the clever genius of Eric Buell is that he recognized this advantage to having these heavy cruiser engines in a sport bike. That there's actually a sport in in the in the. Uh, the, the power band is extremely low, so you can get an enormous amount of acceleration uh, from from the start in these bikes. That yeah. that you're you're not you're not revving it up to six thousand from from the moment you take off. Everyone else, so so you're in a race. Everyone else next to you is throttling up, throttling up. You don't need to do that on on these bikes. And he recognized that advantage, and that's why he came up with this idea to use a Harley engine in a race bike. Right. Well, it's, it's very similar to Ducati bikes, but 
the but the mad the mad genius was do it with harley um yeah and it yeah it, it is the american ducati in in very many ways but the the bike looks so outlandish yeah it it has a beautiful aesthetic i'm i'm in love with the bike with the with the whole model all the all the firebolts the now, lightnings you look, picked look yours wonderful. up for what 2 grand yeah $2000 it was used so it's an 03 and i it has a it had uh 45,000 on it when i bought it that many i thought yeah. it was lower but still it's not a whole lot like it's only it's low compression it's this is an uh, this is an understressed motor i think these last for quite a while mm-hmm. And they're uh, and they're undervalued. I mean, after I bought it, Eric, the the company for the second time, like the eighth and time, they, yeah. went under. <laughs> and and they're now officially being liquidated. And the the Buell Motorcycles is no, or the EBR is no more. The the, the re the independent recreation of Eric Buell's project is is now finished. He'll be back. Let's hope I, so. I have all faith that Eric Buell. Let's will hope he's back because he should be the goddamn president, <laughs> right? Right. I, who else has the kind of like crazy genius to create not just an American sport motorcycle company, but one that was competitive? You know, I believe that Buell was quite profitable while they were part of Harley. It wasn't till that they had their resources kicked out from under them. And then they started EBR and they couldn't get the dealership network off the ground that it really, you know, caused concern with the investors Mm -hmm. and then they all had to pull out on him you know it's not like ebr failed because they couldn't sell any bikes they failed because the investors pulled out because they couldn't get their dealer network together quick enough Mm -hmm. you know he he did he did um sort of write a few checks his ass couldn't couldn't deliver on because he promised some sales and some popularity and the bikes were good enough the bikes were good enough you talk to anyone that's ridden one of these things and people absolutely love them. Yeah, and and, and they've always been undervalued. You cannot find. I mean, it's it's not difficult to pick up a bike just like mine for about the price I paid for it. Uh, but we well, just had some cosmetic delivered. issues that I want to oh, get into. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the guy who sold it to me, uh, in in his in his defense, he is he was an engineering student. He was a graduating engineering student. He was uh, he was selling his Firebolt so he could buy the latest model EBR as like a graduation award <laughs> for himself. Uh, and a lot about this bike, it it is the bike that an engineer would own. And he did all of the he went through all of the factory modifications, all the all the all the after um, all the recalls. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knew everything. He knew he knew where to put tape because the the heat uh, the uh, the heat from the engine will wear through certain cables and make your um, um, make your gas pump fail, like your right. your, f- your fuel pump fail. Uh, and he did all of those things and updated it. He even he changed the belt. Um, he's he he treated it the way an engineer would treat his bike, and it is a bike for engineers. Um, but there are a couple of things he did that I didn't didn't like, and one was the way he painted it. Right. Well, explain why it's difficult. Uh, uh, did we ever find out if it's aluminum or do we know? Um, I'm, find I'm pretty I sure it's an, an aluminum, but, but, but the frame, so what makes it okay. is an aluminum frame. Okay. Uh, frame. What makes Buell's unique is that the frame 
is also the the gas tank there so that type of that's the whole xb series and they're called fuelers because they're um because the fuel's in the tank and that lowers the center of gravity which has a race advantage among several other things like the the oils in the swing arm right uh, which further lowers the center of gravity so um but it's got this big enormous thick frame and then his his fairing he chose a material called surolin which is what golf balls are made from and it's it's has a dye in mold paint in mold um mm-hmm. so approach which means that it's when they manufacture it, it has the paint in there um which is how golf balls are made uh which means that it is extremely difficult to repaint them the paint doesn't adhere uh you have to spray a base coat on and there's a very high chance that you'll fail at at trying whatever approach you do basically um plastidip is really the only way to go anymore um or you just revert to the original color so he had painted i'm not quite sure what he did he did a pretty decent job um no on, he didn't on a couple of the parts um but all in all, it was a shabby-looking paint job. He it probably had looked better before, but it had worn down over time, which is why, which is the trouble with Surlin, is that it might look good at first, uh, but it breaks down. Yeah, and and so there was so it was originally a white bike with a silver frame, uh, and he had painted the frame red and hadn't really protected it too well with he hadn't really taped down newsprint or anything so there's a little bit of a you can you can see the, the it was over spray all yeah. over the place yeah the shakes of his spray can didn't didn't come across too well uh and uh the uh and then he got this wild hair to spray the forks so so it's, <laughs> it's it was red red frame with a black fairing black front forks which those did not hold the paint well. That no, they didn't. And, and then he also, so that Harley V-twin engine, which is half covered, it's covered by some fairing and by the uh, uh, by the exhaust pipe, so you can't see much of it. But he painted that whole V black as well. Yeah. Which was not high temperature. I don't think he used high temperature paint because it's uh, it's broken down in the middle, and so that's going to I be I think the mind. theme he was going for was good in theory, but the execution, there, there wasn't a good follow through. Right. Well, it was it's difficult. Now, it, it's written in the manual, but it's difficult to predict the kinds of problems that you're going to have trying to repaint this sort of material. All right. So so what has your uh, strategy been on correcting this? All right. So um, I've, I've tried a few different things, and that's also why my Kawasaki project was delayed a little bit, was because I started messing around with this Buell, which runs perfectly. It's just cosmetic treatments. Um, the first thing I did was I decided to revert the fairing back to its original color, mm-hmm. so, which is white. So, so he had white fairing that he had painted black. So in theory, all you have to do is chip off the paint. And I actually did that in a spot. I spent about an hour and a half on it and my progress was so slow the paint the paint job was wonderful underneath it was this nice glossy original white i could see it down there but i mean i could have spent months just chipping this paint away and i don't have that kind of time um i i figure it was far better for my money to take it into a shop somewhere but i haven't done that yet (laughs) um because i came up with another idea um and then the next thing i tried was to soda blast it 
Yes, the Harbor Freight Soda Blaster. Mm-hmm. Give us your quick review and experience with that. Um, you know, it, it, it works out pretty well. So I have a 27-gallon a, a uh, um, uh, air compressor mm-hmm. and, and this uh, Harbor Freight $150 uh, 40-gallon soda tank right. of, of blast media. Uh-huh. And it, 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 you know, it takes a little bit of finagling, some finessing. Uh, you have to, it's, it's definitely a finicky little device. You have to learn how to, uh, how to charge it up. So there's definitely a learning curve, uh, getting the spray to come out appropriately. But eventually I, I, I've gotten to the point where I can spray it on the first try. Uh, I have to constantly kind of shake the can back and forth with one hand while I'm spraying with the other. Well, it's Harbor Freight, you know, there's going to be some, uh. Anything from Harbor Freight's kind of like an old Nintendo. You know, only mm. you can get it to work right. It may not work the same way in another person's hands. Mm. It may not work correctly as according to the manual. Um, but you know I'm sure I can grow by leaps and bounds for it. But I want it, one of these things. It works well. Twenty seven gallons doesn't get it enormously far and then you have to wait and rechallenge. Um or wait wait and re- recharge it, re uh, right. air compress. Uh, so you took but, the you took the soda blaster to the whole frame. Yeah. So that the fairing it didn't work too well. So the soda blasters the the soda blaster actually worked on the frame decently, uh, but it only took it down a little bit. It took the red. So there was red over a black base coat over the original silver paint and primer, uh, and uh, the the flow of the soda was very irregular. So I got. Um, I got some spots down to the black, and then immediately next to it, there would be a hole right down to the bare metal. Mm-hmm. So I had gone through, without really intending to, I had gone right down to, uh, through the through the original primer, taking off every layer of paint. So at that point, I decided to switch tactics and remove all every speck of paint from this entire motorcycle i think it looks uh, great that way yeah and it because I've, I've always had this love of beautiful old um brushed aluminum uh, or br- or just stainless steel engines you look back at the old uh, um uh you look at like old 60s jags and they they just have this they, i've loved that look so i decided to take off all this paint and the soda blaster was actually pretty slow at doing that, uh, so I so I bought a uh, um, uh, an orbital sander. Okay. And the orbital sander took it pretty decently, and I spent probably two afternoons messing with the orbital. What sander. kind of grit were you using on that? Um, I was using two twenty was my initial grit. Okay, so you're starting off pretty rough. Yeah, yeah. It comes off well. That's the 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 um, the nice thing about aluminum. Uh, just like with uh, most motorcycle engines, my Kawasaki engine, uh, is that you can go over it with something r- rough initially to get, like, a, for, in, for my Kawasaki, I was taking rust off of it. Uh, and then you get a, a, a different grit, like 110 of, uh, in, in my case, I used 110 of uh, steel wool. And then okay. you just go over it and it starts to polish up. And if you, And you can just go more and more fine until it's shining. Right. I, I still would have expected the 220 to leave like gouges in there that you wouldn't be able to get out. But Mm-mm. obviously no, yours mean, looks great. So 220 is fine. It, it to start initially with. looked like you like you took a orbital sander over it, like it had circles. 
Right. Um, so you, you could call those gouges, but it was nothing that uh, 110 grit uh, could Well, 110 is, is rougher. You're, you're talking about basically... Oh, oh, you're talking about, me, yeah, you're talking about like triple O steel yeah, wool. excuse me, I am, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is very fine. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised you didn't have to do something intermediate in between, but no, you got great results, so mm-hmm. there you go. You could just do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I was very pleased with the results, and now I've decided to, uh, since I don't have the time to chip off all that paint, I'm going to plastic dip the uh, the fairing the way yes. I Yes, yeah, we got to get into this, so... Um, yeah, one one way or another, before Swiggy gets a garage here, or if I get my uh, my shed put together, or we do it in your garage. We got to start messing with some Plasti Dip. I've um I've sprayed some Plasti Dip before, but just from the can, I can't wait to get some of this stuff in a gun with a proper air compressor and get some really good coats. You know, I've been thinking about doing a vinyl wrap on my bike, but I don't know if maybe I should just do a do a a vinyl um. A plastic dip job on that and get real intricate with some taped off areas and do some crazy like 90s like you know jazz designs on the side of it something something real weird wonderful and custom i don't know um something like that but you know this buell's gonna look so good because we were talking earlier about doing it white with the pearlizer that they do mm. over it so you get the shiny white with the totally steel frame or yeah, I mean, a bare you can, metal frame. Well, yeah, with that with that massive cradle frame, cutting it off, that's gonna look great. Yeah, because it's not like it's like a, you know, if you did the same thing to like a Ducati with its trellis frame, it would look odd. Or even even you know a regular twin spar would look a little off if it wasn't just right. Uh, I have seen some chromed up frames on some some weird bikes that looks good, but it's a very very custom look. This this I think will almost look like it could have been stock. Well, it looks but like- it'll but it'll have a, a sort of custom quality as well. Mm-hmm. And, and it's almost like reflective the way you've got it polished up now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not completely finished with it, but because uh, um, I've only put in uh, two afternoons of work. Uh, but it, 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 once I, once I took that finer steel wool to it, I was amazed at how quickly it changed it. And there, and, and I can step to even finer grit at. this year. Um, I got it in November, uh, yeah, late November. Also, it's been well so over had, a year. Yeah, I've had yeah, it for yeah. over a year now. And we rode the hell out of this thing all mm-hmm. year, didn't we? Yeah. And you've had no mechanical problems with it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Well, there was that time I was riding it and the oil filter fell off. <laughs> there um, was that. <laughs> Surprisingly, it was probably user oh, as, error. As far as I know, only one of us has been pulled over. On the <laughs> <so> <laughs> you <far>. were. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It is a cop magnet and a hooligan magnet. Well, didn't the cop like not even recognize what it was when? What was the story? Oh, uh, dude. So let's uh, <coughs> let's uh, let's back up and. And uh, paint the picture. So we're we're traveling up through. We've just come up through southern Nebraska, and we're heading up to Carhenge. Oh, for the eclipse! For That's the right. eclipse. And so I had you had I had done the first hundred uh, ish miles on the W six fifty, right? And you had taken the Buell, the Buell, and then we swapped bikes. Right after we got into Nebraska. 
Uh-huh. So we come up on this small town, and it the uh, the eclipse traffic has just kind of caught up with us, which we're was all nuts. We're all converging, and it turns out that I got st- we got separated by a red light, and I was stuck behind. Now the Buell, the Buell does not like to go slow. It doesn't like to to coast on on idle. It, it'll backfire now and then on a on a, <laughs> on a good day, decelerating yeah. actually. So, and the whole time the bike, once you get going on that bike and you really get to start putting the throttle on and getting around just that fifteen hundred <laughs> RPM and up, it just feels amazing. But when you're sitting at those low revs, just puttering along and stop and go traffic, it's awful. And the whole time the bike's just saying, just go, just go, go. Oh my God, I come mean, on. It is a Harley Sportster engine. So it is uh, it, it at, at less than 2,000 RPMs, it will like it will have yeah. noticeable gaps. Oh, potato, so, potato, potato, potato. Oh yeah. So we didn't want to get too separated because we were talking on the Cenas, and he was ahead of me on my bike, and it was kind of one lane through this small town, and as we were coming out of the town, I would never have done this on the W650, <laughs> but for some reason I thought this was the perfect opportunity. To just, on a two-lane road, just overtake eight or nine cars in a row. At a good clip over the speed limit. Probably 20 or 25 miles an hour over the speed limit. And it felt pretty normal at the time. And then the, the cop came out behind. Did not see him at all until I was back in traffic. It's like... I even turned around and did the whole, oh, me? Me? Are you, are you uh, okay, okay. Um, so we pu- got pulled over, um, and then, oh, it was, it was a bit of a pickle, because I had to take the scene off and get the helmet off so I could talk to the cop, and it was right before he could tell me where the registration and the insurance was while I'm speeding in another state way above the speed limit overtaking cars somehow I managed to get out of this out of the out of a ticket um I believe my primary strategy of shutting the fuck up was was pretty effective there um Fortunately, I also had no record, no, uh, no criminal record whatsoever. Never had a traffic ticket. But in my his, life. his computer didn't even bring up what the bike was, right? His computer <laughs> didn't bring up Buell. Like, right? He actually wrote on on the 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 warning, the like the warning citation he gave me. It actually says XP nine, and it's Buell spelled B U E. L. I didn't. I don't think he really cared at that point. I think he he asked if it was like a Kawasaki or something at one point, and I really had to bite my tongue and say, "Excuse me, this is an American bike, sir." Oh yeah, <coughs> that's the crazy thing about it because it, it's so very like crotch rocket, um, 
you know, really aggressive, super, super sports sort of thing, but it's, it's an American bike and like no one, no one knows what it is or, or if they do, they're not familiar with all the things that make it so weird and special. They're like, Oh yeah, it's that, that's that American sport bike. You get asked. Um, when someone recognizes me, they, they make it clear that they recognize me on, on a Buell. There you go. I get, I get the one guy. Probably every trip, there's one guy who's like thumbs up out his car window. Yeah, so it's it's a great bike. You know, I keep I keep saying, you know, what you're riding says a lot about you, as opposed to car culture. You know, if someone's in an F150, you know, there's a time maybe like in the 60s we sort of knew a little bit more about that guy by what he was driving. But anymore, yeah, I don't know. He could work in a bank. He could be. A dentist he could be a plumber I, I don't know who that guy is but bikes say a lot more about you and being that buell guy on the road when you're recognized it's got to feel good because you're obviously you're 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 riding a different ride than almost everyone else so there we go all right well cool let's take another break here and then we'll come back with another topic or something like that All right, coming back again. So, Mike, what I want to talk about and talk about with you, because you are a doctor. Yes, I am. All right, and you've done some you've done some stuff in the ER, haven't you? I've done some ER work. I'm internal medicine trained, so uh, so I mostly see the patients that are uh, that once they go to the ER, they're sick enough to stay in the hospital. Um, but yes, I've I've done some. Uh, uh, some moonlighting in the ER these days. The ER is a is a completely different residency training program. But yeah, I have. Okay, so what constantly amazes me with gear, I a lot of people still continue to not want to wear fucking helmets. And um, I've said recently, I've been saying that I have more respect for adults who have a problem eating their vegetables than those who don't want to wear helmets. And that's obviously important. If you're not wearing a helmet, like you're a fucking idiot. And I don't even want to get into that debate. You know, I don't think there should be a helmet law. I just think we should judge you really harshly as a society. If you're not wearing a fucking helmet while you're riding a bike. Um, I mean, even what passes for a bicycle helmet is bullshit. If you're going to ride your bicycle around town and you could potentially be hit by a car, you know, that, that piece of shit bicycle helmet is just not up to snuff, but whatever, you know, if you're riding your bicycle around your, your neighborhood or something, I don't give a shit if you wear a helmet or not, but anyway, but people still refuse to wear gloves as well. And this blows my mind because when, when you get thrown off balance, your hands hit the ground first, right? Like you mm -hmm. automatically just throw them out to try to protect yourself. Right. Okay, so, but in 2018, without your hands, you're unemployable, right? That's one way of looking at it. Yeah, we, we so I tell all my patients, I do not mess around with the hand. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's an entire subspecialty of surgeons, the hand surgeon. Right, your hands mm. are so delicate, a normal doctor can't even fucking help you. 
a, no- right? a normal surgeon. Yeah, you have to you you have to subspecialize in it because there are all there there are little tissue spaces um, mm-hmm. that where and if an infection is introduced, it can spread through throughout an entire length of the hand. Right. So we don't even need to get to the part where, like, you know, your hand's broken or bones, whatever. We're just mm-hmm. talking, like, if you just get a bunch of road rash up on your hands, you can be in for bad, bad news. Yeah, if you if you have a puncture wound. Right. So I, I would just, to anybody who doesn't feel like wearing gloves, I would suggest getting your, your downward dog uh, yoga pose on your carpet. As you And do. just slide your hands a foot. And then... Go out and try and do the same thing on asphalt and see how that feels. And then imagine doing that at just 20 miles an hour down the road. Just just imagine what that might feel like and what that'll do to your hands. Yeah, road, road is, you know, we were talking about sandpaper earlier. Road is probably what, one grit? <laughs> <laughs> It's terrible. So, yeah. So, you know, now if you, you come off your bike, right, let's say you're just riding and whatever happens, mm-hmm. a car hits you. You can, let, Let's say, theoretically, you don't hit a car first or anything. You're just, you're just hit. You fly through the air and then you just hit the ground. The bike doesn't hit you or whatever. Mm-hmm. This is probably an unrealistic, unrealistic scenario, but I think this is what a lot of people imagine. They're riding, and then all of a sudden, they're just not on their bike. They're on the ground, right? So you're going to start sliding at whatever speed the bike was going, or a little bit less, right? Right. Possibly more if you get hit by a vehicle doing a higher speed than you. So at what rate does, like, your tissue just disappear from your body? Because I've heard people spit out different numbers. Do you know anything about this? Uh, that that varies so much. I I don't I don't have the numbers right in front of me, uh, but it's it all depends on how much protection is between your skin and and that very gritty pavement. Okay, what's the worst like injury you've seen motorcycle related or heard about? Oh well, well death on a motorcycle. Okay, <laughs> right, but like. Like what? What? What was the? What was the trauma specifically? Um, I'd say spinal cord injuries are the worst. Spinal cord seen. injury, yeah. is that like fairly common when someone comes off a bike? Um, it, it's common enough. I mean, I, say, I we um, we see it. So, have you had much had much time to like look at the uh, like the CE two back protectors that are out now? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Would... What what kind, what value do you see in those? Um, enormous value. I mean, first off, if you have a piece of metal, the sharp edge of metal that's going at you at at, at a very high rate of speed, then it's not nothing is going to protect you from that right. sharp edge. But blunt trauma, uh, it can be the dif- difference between maintaining your spinal cord or not, or severing your aorta. The, the, just the 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 mere shock, the force. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so blunt force immer injuries what we call acceleration or deceleration injuries um there it's not just the, the the force hitting your skin or hitting your bones it's it's about the tissue itself moving at a high rate of speed so maybe um maybe your liver will move at a high rate of speed 
away from your other organs and that mm-hmm. would pull on your blood vessels or whatever else doesn't move right okay. it's, it's inertia all right so when people are making fun of us for looking like power rangers <laughs> you know the well well you know because these new like textile jackets that are that are rated for you know a higher slide than a lot mm-hmm. of leather is you're or, you know or and they've got the, all the inserts for this body armor, you know. It's just nice to hear from you know a, a a doctor that you know it's not just to make me feel better, that it does yeah. do something. You know, I I can't. You, you want to be the guy who walks home at the end of the day. Yeah, of course it's you a, do. Of course you do. But you know, this idea of like you know that you're you're cool just wearing a a leather vest. What just is cruising up with down that? the road with your your sleeveless jacket and your assless pants? Right. <laughs> and, no shoes. No shoes. Yeah. I what? Okay. So, in terms of like your feet, because this is one thing I'm not great about. I don't wear the boots that I probably should be wearing. Uh, I wear boots that have a pretty sturdy sole to them. Um, but they're not steel toe, but they are like long and they'll, you know, stop me from getting like burned by pipes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Swiggy, I think you know more about like boots than I do. What, why, why would one want or need boots? Um, so I, I'm by no means an expert for it, but there are lots of different ways that your boots are going to protect you. Um, Generally, you'll see like the the motocross guys will have knee high boots that are really sturdy and they'll be very stiff and they're mainly looking for lots of um, ankle support uh-huh. um, because you know they're they're sticking their feet out a lot onto the ground and there is a risk of just their ankles getting twisted and causing serious injury. Yeah, I mean, look at the difference between your standard riding boots and uh, and racing boots right there there's ankle support right so and then on top of that there is the um having a stiff sole and enough support around it you know if if you come off the bike and the bike just lands on your foot there's a good chance of it getting crushed um supposedly the worst injuries are um is when the bike rolls over your foot or if part of the car rolls over your foot, not only are you, have you got these crushing forces that are going to break bones, but there's this much, much more cringe inducing injury called degloving where (laughs) the, the force on the force on your skin and, and moving laterally will just rip all the connective tissue between your skin and the muscle Mm. underneath. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's your skin coming off your limb and your extremities like a glove. Oh, it's so metal. Um, But it doesn't sound like a good time if it's happening to you, does it? (laughs) Uh, No, I I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) It does sound pretty fucking metal. Wearing your protective gear is a good idea. Right. But I mean, on top of, all of these things that you can potentially prevent with good gear or lessen the impact of and you know wearing a helmet where 
you get a concussion instead of dying or you don't get a concussion where you would have got a concussion or or a less bad concussion on top of all of that a lot of your gear can really actually make your ride more enjoyable um especially like with with my boots they're they're really sturdy they've got like a little notch to sit on the on the pegs mm-hmm. everything feels sturdy you it feels comfortable moving the shifter and operating the brake and they grip onto it and there's this feeling of security that comes with it and gear has really come a long way um especially with helmets i noticed that um i i could not imagine doing a thousand miles not wearing a helmet and just having a pair of shades on the the comfort it gives in terms of uh noise reduction the the fatigue from just getting hit by the wind all the time uh it just makes a huge difference and i would say i i would say that a lot of people would who've been riding for a long time might have been turned off of gear when they started riding but gear is just so good these days that it i i would say that it enhances your ride more than it's than it gets annoying yeah the 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 way i describe it is it's a lot like ski gear you know when i started skiing in like the late 80s (laughs) Like, I remember how fucking awful it was. Like, the boots were just uncomfortable. It was just this thing that everyone sort of accepted. Like, oh, yeah, ski boots, they're the worst. Um, but now they're, like, so cushy and they feel so good. They feel like they they feel like better than your shoes. They've got this, this foam that molds to you and everything. And, yeah, um, you know, the, the jackets are so much better, you know. Like waterproof clothing was something we were promised a long time ago. And like the, we massively failed to deliver on its promise and it, but it, now it really exists. You know, there's like legit waterproof shit you can buy. Um, I still kind of like the idea of just like keeping some trash bags in your like in your tank bag, <laughs> got some sleeves in it. But, um, but if you got if you got the money to spend, waterproof gear is fantastic, and you know your, your gloves are good. Your helmets are super comfortable now because helmets used to be the worst as well. Um, this idea that yeah that your gear is going to take away from your experience is really bullshit anymore. And you're right, you you're going to have a you know my my helmet when I'm riding it's it's like my home. You know, that's, that's where I'm living. That's my space. And I took a long time to select a really good helmet because I was going to be spending a lot of time inside of it. Right. You know, don't, don't, don't skip money on your, uh, on your bed, your TV or your helmet. Cause you spend a lot of time there. Right. So, um, have you, Mike, have you seen getting back to the ER? Have you seen any motorcycle accidents yourself in the ER? So, so no. And the reason for that is uh, I don't work as a full time ER physician. Right. So I've I've done some side work in the ER, and where the where the trauma cases show up depends entirely on uh, where the where the ambulance service will take them. So so the the where the EMT shows up to 
then so that they will show up at the scene of the accident and most vehicular trauma if it's Mm -hmm. it's if it's of any serious degree which most motorcycle accidents are a higher degree of trauma they will go to a tertiary care facility so they'll go immediately to a trauma center okay um are there any like times of the day that are more common for them that you're aware of for for motorcycle trauma yeah uh, would be commuter hours it's commuter hours yeah. okay yeah. You, you have to be most cautious i mean yes people will slide out um on gravel any time of day or night uh, but it's 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 the other traffic it's the traffic that doesn't see you that's that's the real risk and so any time when there's a lot of traffic on the road it's going to be the time you see the most and the most serious motorcycle accidents okay that's a, i didn't i didn't realize that before i guess i've always had this idea that most motor motorcycle accidents happen from just dudes riding extremely irresponsibly but if uh but traffic i mean commuter hours that makes a lot of sense that would bump up the numbers um what what well that also could be inflated in terms of well or um slightly a slightly more nuanced approach might be that the just the sheer number of riders out on the road Mm. is going to be the highest during commuter hours um, and that's what I was going for. I mean, you're right. I don't, okay. I, I don't have the statistics right in front of me. You're kind well, of yeah. asking me off, <laughs> but, uh, um, well, while we got yeah. you here, I'm just going to mine you for, for weird mm-hmm. wreck information, anything I can get. Um, what, what would be the more common, like, you know, bad injuries that you're going to see? So, uh, the most common injury, which is not particularly bad is going to be collarbone injury. Uh, or uh, fall. So you said it yourself. Fall on an outstretched, out on an outstretched arm. Um, you're going to get um, wrist and shoulder, um, elbow injuries. Mm-hmm. So I would say uh, um, long bone injuries are are the most common. Uh, if you di- if you injure your abdomen, long if you get, bone injuries. Yeah, all your long bones. So your uh, um, your your femur, your humerus. Your femur. Oh, yeah. that sounds brutal. I can't. Can you imagine breaking your femur? I don't know. That that gets me. Like you know, like some people got to think about like their eyes or their nose or or like you know a sensitive part of their body. Like, oh. well, it's not. You're just it's saying not, that breaking your femur. Well, it's not difficult to deal. break on a motorcycle. If you, all you have to do is get a pin somewhere or turn somewhere. I know, but a, uh, it's such a, a large bone. Like, I there's no way to like uh, sort of break. It. Like, you know, people break their collarbones doing like fairly mundane things from time to time. Like when you just say broken femur, oh, you know their force is what's so. A, a, from what I've heard, a common in a common mm-hmm. injury from particularly crossing an intersection and a car making a left turn in front of you mm-hmm. when you have that kind of T-bone collision. A common uh, injury is breaking both of your femurs because you fly forward, the bike stops, and both of your thighs impact the handlebars. Oh my gosh. Having a pelvic injury is a big one. So you've got this, you've got this big wing shaped bone that's holding, that's supporting your legs. 
and there are all kinds of places where that can that can break down and i've seen people uh um i've i've seen people break both of their femurs and their pelvis in three or four places and they can they can end up with a um I mean, you're, you've got a lot of important vital structures in that area, uh-huh. uh, it, in, including your urethra, you know, and, and so your urethral trauma is well known from anyone who injures their, their, their pelvis. Kind of our common story is the four-wheeler, but a motorcycle isn't far off from that. I would like to remind our listeners at this point that this is a pro-motorcycling podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to talk to Mike about yeah, just it, weird motorcycle injuries while we got him yeah, here. And it's difficult moving to a place like Colorado where there's a lot of uh, um, uh, there, there's a lot of extreme sports here, and a lot of people go outdoors and enjoy themselves in ways that can 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 put them in harm's way. Uh, so you can't move to a state like Colorado and then tell people don't do these things. So so you, you need to be responsible and be aware that these injuries can happen to you. And there's a possibility that they could happen to you even if you did everything right. Um, but uh, but being cautious is the way to go. Yeah, yeah. It, writing is all about mitigating risk all the time, constantly with, you know, you know, checking your mirrors and checking all your spots and, you know, making sure you're following distance, making sure you're in the correct lane position, anticipating what other people are going to do, anticipating what other people are going to do, looking for objects on the road. And then again, just wearing all your gear to prevent it. But at the end of the day, you're doing something dangerous. There's no way to get around that really. I mean, I mean, how dangerous is it? It's not insanely crazy dangerous, but there's some risk involved. I don't. It just blows my mind that you see these fucking idiots without any goddamn gloves. It's it's not like gloves are expensive, you know. Like even there's a lot of gloves that people might wear just to like um stop the wind on their knuckles, right? But but they're not rated for like any sort of impact or slide. As soon as they actually touch the ground, they're just going to get cut to ribbons and they're not going to do anything for your hands, right? But, I mean, they'll still do something, right? So, like, the idea of going out with just nothing on your hands or even the idea that you're going to go out, you've got nothing on your hands you got or, or you've got these fingerless gloves... Well, your hands are just going to get freaking cold and it's going to be a distraction and then you're more likely to have an accident, even if it's only by slightly. It's just so simple. Gloves. Gloves. What, why, what is it about people that they're so... Uh, is obtuse the word or they're so... Um, obtuse isn't the word. What am I looking for? They're ignorant to the risks. They're not even ignorant to the risks. A lot of the times they know the risks, but they just want to give a big middle finger to safety, like just because they're just anti gear because they think it's not like traditional in motorcycles or something like that. I that seems to be the thing that comes up again and again. They they never outright say it. They always these guys always come up with weird conspiracy theories on why wearing a helmet is more harmful than good or why, you know. And I think just deep down they have this idea that, well, I if I need to look like the guys in the old seventies motorcycle movies, or I'm not legit. And because they want to serve themselves so much and fulfill that image 
they'll come up with any sort of weird mental gymnastics to justify why they're not wearing what they should be wearing. And money shouldn't really be an issue either. If gloves were a thousand dollars, you should still buy them. You know, plenty of these guys are buying bikes that they can not even begin to afford. What's it to just throw a couple more hundred bucks on top of that for a decent jacket, helmet, and gloves? I don't know. Uh, Does it make any sense to me? Does it make sense to you? Not really, no. (laughs) I really don't want to see preachy here about gear, because I know gear is like a boring topic. But I'm really interested in that mindset of the weirdo that makes excuses. You know, if... If you're not wearing the right stuff and you're sort of upfront about it, then that's cool. You know, well, it's not cool, but I'm more okay with you if you're like, yeah, I don't wear the stuff I should wear. I'm an idiot. Okay, that's easy to accept. But I know plenty of people, I've met plenty of people that will come up with some sort of way, you know, they've got the sort of flat earth thinking where they'll come up with a way to justify why they don't oh well you know it just i i feel like i can't grip the handlebars right if i don't it's a, well stop being a baby about it just wear the gloves i guarantee you after a week it'll feel natural and there'll be no problem and i mean that's distorted thinking in the end uh anything that anything that gets between you and safety becomes distorted thinking i mean if you the, the idea of walking away from a situation safely or having there's so many examples in life where you had a lapse of safety and then you ended up injuring yourself or breaking something around you and you just think to yourself, well, how stupid was I for that? But hindsight is always twenty twenty. Yeah. All right. Well, you guys got anything else to add? Uh, no, I think we're good. No. All right. Are we ready for the outro? Thanks for having me on, guys. All right. So when I don't want to die, just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm-hmm, cool. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. And I don't want to die, just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm-hmm, cool. And episode two is done. We made it. Peace.